It says in, in, uh, in Matthew uh, chapter 16 about, it talks about discipleship. And so I, I, I figured, you know what, I would share in Matthew 16, uh, 21 through 26. So if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew 16, 21 through 26. Uh, we're going to emphasize and camp in uh, Matthew uh, 16, 24. Um, and as I was reading this and, and studying this, it just like the Lord, I was telling Pastor Manny that the Lord was just taking it to me. Because as I was contemplating what Jesus is saying in this section, just all the, the, the ways that I do not deny myself were magnified. Um, really, when you're studying, it, it's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be for you. Uh, because if you don't receive it, then how can you give it out, right? And so it says, if you're there with me, in verse 21, and I'm just going to read it, uh, 21 through 26, and then we'll go back and... and slow down a little bit and talk about um, the verses, you know, as we go. But it says, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he, he being Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Verse 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples the following, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then he goes on to say, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And so here in verse 21, from that time, that this is an important expression of time because it indicates a, a new stage in Jesus' disciples with uh, with his disciples and his interactions with the disciples. Prior to this, uh, the ministry of Jesus had been ministering to the masses. Uh, now, as he's getting closer to, uh, to the cross, he, he, he kind of slows down and he starts ministering to those that are closest to him, to the disciples. Uh, have you ever been to an event and they give you this itinerary and it basically tells you what is going to take place? Sometimes they break it down really neatly. Uh, you know, at the time and so forth, and you kind of know what to expect. Well, this is in essence what Jesus is doing. He's preparing the disciples uh, for not a banquet, <laughs> not a show for, for the horrible events that were only a few months away. The cross, uh, the persecution, uh, the uh, torture that he had to face. Jesus had hinted to his death prior to this. In Matthew 9.15, he points to uh, mourning when someone asks his disciples about fasting and why they're not fasting. In, in Matthew 9.15, it says, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But then he alludes to the fact that one day he is going to die. He is going to be taken from them. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. In Matthew 10, 38, uh, pointing to individuals following him, which is where we're going to camp on today, 
verse 24, he says something similar. He says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Alluding to the fact that he was going to take the cross. Follow someone to the cross. You take your cross and you follow Jesus as the example of him taking his cross, dying on our behalf. And then in Matthew 12, 40, pointing to Jonah as he is being asked for a sign. He says, you're not going to get a sign. The only sign that you're going to get was Jonah, who was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. He says, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so he, he, he alluded to this. He, he told them in a veiled way what was going to take place. But this is the first time, guys, from that time, that's what that means, that he openly discusses with the disciples what was going to take place, what was going to happen. It says, Jesus began to show. If you, if you harmonize the Gospels, and you should as you're reading the Gospels, it, it says in Mark 8.31, he began to teach. And for context, uh, here in, in Matthew um, 16.13 and in, and in Luke, Jesus asked, who the people say that I am. Remember, that's how that whole uh, conversation with, with Peter being named the rock and all that took place. And Matthew, Matthew, excuse me, Mark 16, verses 13 through 17, it records that Jesus asked about who people were saying he was, and he asked it in terms of who they said the Son of Man is. Now, besides Acts chapter 7, verse 56, when Stephen is being killed, he's the first martyr, uh, Jesus is the only one who's ever referred himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man, that's an interesting title, guys. Uh, because the Son of Man is a title of humanity. It's a, in an indirect way, it's saying that he was human, 100% human and 100% God. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, we're told he came in the flesh. It's also a title of humanity because if it's a title for man, being God, it also qualifies as a title of his humility. His humility. Philippians 2, 6 through 8 takes us to the fact that even though he was God, what? He humbled himself to the point of the cross. It's a title of humanity. It's a title of his humility. It's also a title of his deity. Uh, Stephen confirmed this when he said, I saw the man, son of man standing in heaven in Acts seven fifty six. And then it's also a title of prophecy. In Daniel 7, 13 through 14, it says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming in the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And so again, keeping in context, Jesus had identified himself as the Messiah. But what had the 12 disciples heard most of their life about the Messiah? Bible students should know that the Jews believed that the Messiah was going to come to fix things, to set things in order, right? To, to, to set up a kingdom here on this earth, to provide for them, to uh, finally, you know, uh, uh, bless them in light of all the suffering that they had gone through. They also thought that he was their Messiah. They didn't want to share him with anybody. 
but certainly not that he would die. That, that was defeat in the Jews' eyes. As uh, one commentator, Lenski, put it, they expected earthly grandeur and triumph, not suffering and death. Yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. In plain language, I am going to suffer and I'm going to die. I must. He said, I must go to Jerusalem. In Luke 13.33, we're told that the Messiah had to die in Jerusalem. For no prophet can perish outside of Jerusalem. Don't, don't miss the emphasis uh, here, guys, uh, of the word must. Uh, it reminds me of, and Randy alluded to this, uh, John chapter 4, verse 4, where it says he needed to go through Samaria. Why did he need to go through Samaria? The Jews would never go through Samaria. They would take the extra hike to avoid the Samaritan. But we know the story, right? He needed to go to Samaria, white, to meet specific people, starting with the woman at the well. He must. This is God in the flesh saying, I must. This is part of my commission. This is part of what I was put here to do. This is a side note, guys. Jesus is going to come looking. He's going to come knocking. And he pursues us by the grace of God. Because if it was left to us to pursue, none of us would. None of us would. He's the one. If you're here, it's because of his wooing. It's because he's called us. Yes, in some ways it took us saying yes to him, but it's all him in reality. It's by his grace that we are here. Jesus is teaching. He's showing. Notice his disciples. Now, what is a disciple? Because we're going to talk a lot about that today. A disciple is a follower of Jesus. Before a believer was called a Christian in Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, they were simply called disciples. And we're going to touch on that more on this later. But he was teaching the disciples what? That he had to suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes. And not only that, but ultimately be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, this signifies not only the cross, guys, but also the humiliation, the accusation, the deceptions of those who claim to be of him, both the religious leaders, namely the Sanhedrin, because that's who this was, a Sanhedrin. They were the political leaders. They were the ones in charge. But also his own disciples. In Mark chapter 14, verse 15, it says that they all deserted him. So think about that, that he would that he would suffer many things. It's interesting to me that Jesus didn't give the details to the disciples right there and then. They would one day be witness to the slashing. They would one day be witness to the cross, to the bleeding, to the, to the asphyxiation that Jesus would go through on the cross. That's what the death on the cross was. It was the ultimate way of killing someone. But he didn't tell them the nitty-gritty. He didn't tell them the gory details. They didn't have the strength needed for that yet. They weren't ready. He gives us the strength we need to meet the needs the very moment we need them. Imagine some of the things that you've gone through in life, if you would have known 
a year before or six months before. Some of you might think, well, yeah, I would have been able to prepare better and this and that. No, you would have been thinking about it the whole time leading up to it, being tortured by it, not having the strength to be able to face it when the time came. By the time came, you would have been so exhausted. Jesus gives us what we need at the time that we need it. Look at verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And so the first thing I notice is impetuous Peter. Then Peter. The New Living Translation says, but Peter. We're always thinking of him butting in, right? Rambunctious, impetuous Peter. But through our 2020 hindsight vision, many of us might think, well, we shouldn't have said anything. He should have just kept his mouth shut. Didn't he later reject him, leaving him out to dry? Didn't he deny him himself? We say, I, Peter. If we're from El Monte, we say, I, Peter. But I wonder if we would have done the same thing. I wonder if we've done the same thing. Maybe, maybe Peter did it out of love from a human perspective. Remember, says, I phileo you. Maybe he did it out of pride to show himself above the rest. There was always this competition within the disciples. Perhaps he did it out of self-interest. Remember who they were expecting the Messiah to be. He didn't want the king to die. It wouldn't benefit them if the king died. It would be failure if their Messiah would die. But I believe that I've been guilty of this, and we're guilty of it too. How many times do we tell God how things should be done? Or, or we question his permissive will in our lives. We ask him, well, why, is, why are you doing this? Why did you do it this way? I would have done it another way, God. Look at what we read Peter do. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall not happen to you. Peter was reprimanding Jesus. Notice it says he took him aside and rebuked him. Can you imagine, guys, you seeing Jesus standing there and you go out to him and you grab him by the arm and you say, can I talk to you over there? What are you saying? Why are you saying that you're going to die? You can't say that. What kind of recruitment statement is that, Jesus? How are people supposed to be enthusiastic? How are people supposed to continue to follow us if you're telling them you're going to die. How are you going to keep the morale of the team? He tells Jesus, far be it from you. The NET says, God forbid, Lord. The New Living Translation says, heaven forbid, Lord. And the NIV says, never, Lord. Now, guys, it's okay to tell God our petitions and our supplications. It's okay to tell him our wants, but never, never, never tell him what he must do. Peter was only seen in the present. He hadn't forgotten what he had saw Jesus do in the past. He had forgotten what Jesus said he was going to do in the future. And that we run into problems when we do that, guys, when we're just in front of us, when we're just what's in front of us and we're reacting to that. Jesus, who being in the form of God, meaning he was God, never did that. He never questioned the Father, 
right? In Matthew 26, 39, he went a little farther, fell on his face in the garden of Gethsemane, prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's how we should pray. There's nothing wrong with telling God our needs and our supplications. He knows them already, by the way. But there's something about us sharing those things with him. He wants us. We're encouraged in the scripture to tell him, but not to tell him what to do. Peter rebuking Jesus speaks of Peter telling Jesus he was wrong. This isn't going to happen to you, Lord. I I won't let it happen to you. Look what verse, verse 23 says. But he turned and said to Peter, the famous words, get behind me, Satan. I'll say it with more emphasis because there's an exclamation mark in my Bible. Get behind me, Satan, now. You're an offense to me, he said, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Can you imagine Jesus now turning to you and saying to you, get behind me, Satan? That's, that's what we read here. He said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. Ouch. He just finished calling him a steady rock. And now he's basically saying, you're this pebble on on the road that is making me stumble. Get behind me, Satan. Peter went from speaking from the Father to then speaking from the devil. From a messenger of God to a messenger of Satan. He went from being the rebuker to being the one rebuked. In Mark chapter 8, verse 33, excuse me, it says, but then he turned around and looked at his disciples. I thought that was interesting as we look at what the other gospels have to say. Looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Jesus in some way was rebuking. He was, he was chastising Peter. But he was also teaching, teaching the disciples on how to act, how to be, how to walk. Jesus knew without a doubt that, that, that his opponent, not that the devil was, is, is in any way an opponent of Jesus, right? But that he knew that his, his uh, uh, opponent wasn't Peter, but, but Satan. Ephesians 6.12 tells us that, right, guys? That we fight, what, what, against against the principalities of darkness, not against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. But he still needed to address Peter in a very direct way. So by rebuking Peter, he put Satan in his place. Get behind me is something that's said in the Greek as a Present imperative, meaning get behind me and stay behind me. Don't don't come back. Don't don't be Satan's messenger anymore, Peter. Some say that 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 Jesus' tone, because you know, they make Jesus to be this 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 feminine type of guy that 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 his tone wasn't harsh towards Peter. I don't know, I wasn't there, but it sure sounds like it was. It sure sounds like he addressed Peter in, in a direct and, 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 and firm way as a man. It sure sounds like that. 
And, and this, this reminds me of the wilderness temptation. Maybe some of you have thought about it as we're reading this. It's covered in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. You guys remember there was three temptations that the devil hit Jesus with as he's in the wilderness, as he's fasting, as he's compromised as a human? The first thing he hits him is, is with the belly. How many of you guys get hangry when you're hungry? All right? He hits him in the belly, right? He says, hey, I know you're fasting. I know you're hungry. Make bread. Make bread. Do something about your suffering. You can. What was Jesus' response? Any Bible students out there? It is written. It is written. Man shall not, what? Eat bread alone but by every word that comes from the Father. He then hits him with the second temptation because, you know, the the devil's a boxer. He's going to keep coming back round after round after round. If you are the Son of God, prove it. I'm paraphrasing, in essence, is what he tells him. It says, your, your father says that nothing will ever happen to you. Jump off. Prove it. The angels will catch you. What was Jesus' response, guys? It is written. It is written. You don't test God. You don't tempt the Father. You're right. Nothing will happen to me until the appointed time, but I am not going to test the Father. And then, you know, there was no more beating around the bush with Satan. He basically hits him with the third temptation. You want it all? Bow before me. Circumvent the cross. Circumvent the suffering. You know as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, that it's going to hurt. You know what is before you. Jesus finally had enough. And it reminds me of what he told Satan through Peter here. But this time he says, away with you, Satan. Away with you. Get out of here, Satan. And then he says, it is written. Right? Man shall only worship God. The Father. The good thing with Peter is that he wasn't told away with you. He was just told, stand behind me. <laughs> David Gusick says, we can be sure that Peter was not aware that he spoke for Satan just as a moment before he was not aware that he spoke for God. It's often much easier to be a tool of God or of the devil than we want to believe. Jesus said, hey, you worship me with this side of your mouth and then with this other side of your mouth, you're cursing your brother but still it, it must have stung peter that jesus called him satan how many i wonder how many times the devil works through us every time we come against god's will i'm reminded of what the scripture says in first corinthians eleven thirty one: judge yourself before god must judge you that's what it says in the new living translation but if you would examine ourselves we would not be judged by God in this way. I encourage you, re- rebuke the temptation to go against God's will. Before you must be rebuked by God, you rebuke yourself. Second Corinthians 10.5 tells us that we're to take our thoughts captive, anything that comes against obedience to Christ. You put a handcuff on that thought and you take it captive, you take it away. You send it away. Look what he says next. He says, you're an offense to me. The New American Standard uh, Bible translation and then NIV says you're a stumbling block to me. The ESV says you're a hindrance 
to me. And the New Living Translation says, you're a dangerous trap to me. The stumbling block. It's the word scandalon, from a, a, a root meaning to jump up, to snap shut. It was originally the piece of wood that kept open a trap for the animals. It's where we get our word scandal or scandalous from. And because it's, it's a small part, it was a moving part, it became known as an entanglement of the foot. Scandalon refers to any person or anything by which one is drawn into error or any stumbling block placed in a man's way to trip him up. And I, and I noticed as I was reading this that, that Jesus makes the inference that Satan and man sometimes come from the same camp. He says, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. It's interesting to me that, that just as a side note, Jesus didn't for one moment think of pity for self. Jesus didn't for one moment think, I wonder what Peter would think of me if I respond too quickly or too direct to what he's telling me. Again, quoting Lenski, he says, here's an example of those who dally with the serpent and then find his poisonous fangs lodged in us. Don't dally with the serpent. In verse 21, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Nothing or nobody besides his father was going to dictate anything else. This is a reminder, guys. If, if you want to be right horizontally, you have to be right vertically first. You have to. You're struggling in your marriage, get right with God, and, and, and that marriage will work itself out. God will give you the long-suffering that you need, your wife the long-suffering, the patience, the love to work itself out. If you're struggling with a wayward kid, God will give you the, the, the patience and the love that you need to stand in the gap and pray for that child. It doesn't work the other way around. You, you can't, you know, uh, be right horizontally first and then expect to be right vertically. The man must be conformed first. The things of God and the things of man are opposite of each other. Now, I was thinking, how could Jesus call Peter the rock earlier? knowing that, that Satan would try to work through him in this situation, and even later, worse, Peter denying him. Well, the name rock pointed to what the grace of Jesus would eventually make of him. Peter still had a way to go. And so do we, huh? And so do we. As we always say, the only way to lose is to quit. Don't quit. But don't, don't get in the way of the sanctifying work that, that God wants to do in us. And, and, and the way that we most get in the way is what we're going to talk about now. We're going to camp here for a little while, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The word then is interesting, guys, because then can mean immediately or after some time. But in the Gospel of Mark, we're left with no doubt that Jesus said this immediately in the context 
of responding to Peter. Jesus said this in the context with the previous verses, specifically, you're not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In Mark 8, verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples, also he said to him, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Luke 9, verse 23, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus said this to the disciples. And sometimes we think, well, yeah, he said it to the 12 disciples. They're the, they're the, the disciples on fire. I'm just, I'm just a, a, a merely disciple. I'm just a little disciple. I don't count. He's not really saying this to me. Guys, when I read this, I wanted so badly to find this upper echelon of saints, just the super 12 that Jesus was talking to, but I couldn't. I couldn't find it as much as I tried. He said it to everyone, anyone who wanted to be his disciple, anyone who wants to follow Jesus today. Mark tells us that Jesus was addressing the disciples and the crowd that was there. As I shared earlier, disciples means followers of Jesus. Before a believer was called a Christian in Antioch, they were simply termed disciples. In Matthew 28, 19, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make what? Disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Not converts, not fans, not sympathizers, only disciples. The word disciple in the Greek means to learn. One commentary says it's from a root math indicating thought accompanied by endeavor. It gives us our English mathematics. It describes a person who learns from another by instruction, whether formal or informal. A discipleship includes the idea of one who intentionally learns by inquiry and observation, and thus the Greek word is more than mere pupil. A disciple describes a follower of teacher, of the teacher, of Jesus. The word disciple in itself, especially today, doesn't have no spiritual connotation. It, it could be used of a superficial follower of Jesus as well as of a genuine believer in Christ. But we're all called disciples. You, you cannot pass this and say, well, yeah, he was talking about the twelve. He was talking about the New Testament church. No, he was talking about today. He was talking about anyone that wants to come to Christ. You know, as I watch videos sometimes on YouTube and, and there's people sharing and they ask people, do you know about Jesus? The majority of people say what? Yeah, I know Jesus. I know Jesus. I knew Jesus when I used to go to Catholic church. I would see him right in the middle. There was no doubt. But I didn't know him. I knew of him, I can spot him, I can point him out in the crowd, but I didn't know him. And that's what it means to be a disciple, guys. Jesus says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, God will never make us choose him, but he does demand a way to follow him. Leave it to God. Leave it to God who made us, who in Psalm 103.14 says, he knows our frame to make the terms the conditions like this. He must deny himself. If anyone desires to come after me, 
It's the hardest thing to do. We can't possibly do it in our own strength. There is absolutely no way. But I can't think of anything better for us for God's way are always best. And he knew that was going to be the biggest enemy that we had is self. Self. How many of you guys struggled to come to church today? How many of you guys struggled because Pastor Manny wasn't going to be here and you were wondering who was it going to be? <laughs> but you're here. Praise God. You denied yourself. Some of you said, no, I was delighted to come. Well, praise God for that too. Perhaps that's why Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. If anyone desires to come after me, what does he say? Let him deny himself. I like what Worsby said in his commentary. He has some wise words on what it means to deny self. Denying self is not the same as self-denial. We practice self-denial when for a good purpose we occasionally give up things or activities. But we deny self when we surrender ourselves to Christ and determine to obey His will. This once and for all dedication is followed by a daily dying to self as we take up the cross and we follow Him. From the human point of view, we're losing ourselves. But from the divine perspective, we're finding ourselves. When we live for Christ, we become more like Him. And this brings out our own unique individuality. Quote closed. You guys have heard the term California Christians, right? All of us probably have. If you don't know what that means, California is laid back. And so, you know, a California Christian is someone that, that is lukewarm, that, that is a Christian by title only. But have you heard the term cafeteria Christian? You have, Mike? What that means... When I was a kid, I used to go to this place called Sir George's. How many of you guys are old enough? I just dated myself, all right? That was a bomb, right? And as a kid, man, where did I make my, my way to first? The desserts. Man, they used to have this jello that had cake in the middle. It was, it was bomb, right? But my mom would say, no, 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 mijo, you need everything. You need your vegetables, you need your salad, you need your protein, you need everything. But me, I'm like, no, 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 I just want that. And if I can come back for more, I'm going to come back for more of that. And that's what a cafeteria Christian is, guys. We pick and choose. No, I'm good. Yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Salvation? Sins forgiven? Favor? Blessings? That, let me have a second portion of that. But self-denial, suffering, picking up our cross? Are you kidding me? No, I don't want any of that. Guys, God knows that we need a full diet in order to be full Christians. Right? So they say it takes a full of the full Bible, reading the full Bible to make a full Christian. I just butchered that quote. Pastor Manning's gonna get me when he comes back. In other words, self-denial, as Jesus taught it, does not involve denying oneself things as much as it does denying one's own authority over his or her life. He must deny himself is said in the eros imperative. That's a fancy word for the Greek language when the Greek language tells you to do it now. Like the Nike logo, right? Just do it. That's an eros imperative. Once and for all, one swift move. It's not a bunch of little denials and we put them down in between our selfish acts. It's always denying ourselves. 
Like Luke says in Luke 9.23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. When? Once in a while? On Sundays? Daily. Daily and follow me. To deny means to refuse to recognize or acknowledge. Add the word must to it, and then it strengthens that verb. It strengthens what it means. It means utterly deny. Utterly deny. And so as I was reading this, I said, okay, Lord, I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. But then he says something crazy. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Not to be gross, guys, but I took a big gulp of my saliva at that point. Denying myself is one thing, but denying myself and picking up my cross is a whole other thing. By the way, pick up his cross is also given in the in the Eros imperative, which means pick up your cross once and for all. Do it now. It, 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 you know, some of us have jewelry in the form of crosses. Some of you have a few, right? And you can make a, a decision on what you want to wear. Well, I'll wear the silver one because it matches my outfit. Or nah, silver's out. I want to wear the gold one now. That's not what it's talking about here. In the same way, it's not talking about putting a big old cross on your back and, and, and walking like the hunchback of Notre Dame. It's not talking about that either. It says his cross. Whatever that cross may be. You pick up this cross once and for all and carry it, carry it the rest of your life. Sometimes people say that illness or finances or wayward children, whatever you can add to the blank are their crosses to bear. But they're only opportunities to pick up the cross. Those are things that happen, and as tough and challenging as they may be, they're not the crosses to bear. The crosses to bear is you picking up the cross and say, I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to do what you tell me to do, Lord, in light of what I'm going through, in light of what I'm feeling, in light of what my flesh wants to do. They're only opportunities to pick up your cross. It means that no matter what I will follow, I will follow not my way, but your way, Lord. I was reading a, a commentary by G. Morgan Campbell, excellent commentary, and he was talking about something on the flip side of this. He says, when a man takes it upon himself to do some effort of sacrifice simply because he thinks sacrifice is right and does not wait on the marching orders from God, he's also a scandalone. He's also a stumbling block because true disciples choose to wait on God. True disciples take their marching orders from God. He says, if God chooses to give a disciple a sunny day by the lake, they take that on. But if he chooses to give them a storm, they take it on as well. It's about following him. Suffering is not the deepest sting in the must of life, guys. It doesn't mean that suffering, you know, is the greatest thing that you can do if I suffer for God. No, you must deny yourself, he says, and follow me, whatever, whatever may come. It's interesting to me that Peter was involved in this conversation for it was him who denied Jesus. 
And in denying Jesus, he denied picking up his cross. Sometimes that cross is, is, is the shame of Christ, is the shame to be called a Christian, is a shame for your friends to know that you're a Christian. What will my intellectual friends and family say of me if I tell them that I believe everything that is in that word? Well, that's why I choose to remain not so bright to not be included in that group. That way I don't have to worry about it. We should not be ashamed of God. Romans 1, 16 to 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I think it was Spurgeon who said, there are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. Watch. I want to give you an example of talk but not walk. Turn with me, save your spot here in Matthew, and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. Uh, we'll read 57 through 62. Luke chapter 9, 57 through 62. I'll wait until I hear your pages stop. Luke chapter 9, verses 57 62. And the title of my Bible says The Cost of Discipleship. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In essence, he's saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Then he said to another, follow me. But the other said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. That, that might seem harsh. He says, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. What Jesus is emphasizing there is that it's more important to serve the kingdom of God than the things here on earth. Some people says that what he was saying is, let me go get my inheritance first. Let me go get my plot that my dad left behind. And then after then, then I'll serve you. It's, it's the same thing of what a lot of people say, hey, let me just live my life. And then later on in life, as I get older and I get more settled down, then I'll follow Jesus. Fools. Fools. Because how do you know what will happen tomorrow? What about all those wasted years that, that God could have been conforming you into the image of his son, blessing you, using you for a purpose? What does a man gain? We're going to read in the end if he gains the whole earth but loses his soul in the end. In John, uh, excuse me, it says, we, we continue, right, through 62. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Again, emphasizing what is more important. What is more important? Remember, if you want the horizontal to be right, the vertical has to be right first. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, talking about true worshipers, Jesus says the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and 
truth. In John chapter 6, you remember Jesus fed the multitude. The multitude said, man, I can, I can sign up for this. I can get used to this. But then he said some strong words that they didn't understand. He says, hey, unless you eat of me or drink of my blood, you cannot be my disciples. And what happened? One of the easiest Bible verses to remember is John 666. Because we know that number, right? 666. You want to stay away from that. I remember we had something here, like a payment or something like that for an event, and it was 666. And Pastor Imani and I paid a dollar extra, so it'll be 667. Because <laughs> we didn't want 666. You know, we know what that number signifies. But in the scripture, in the Gospel of John, it says that people started leaving him because he said what he said. But I love John 6, 8 through 6, 9, John chapter 6, verse 68 through 69, because it's beautiful honesty. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? But impetuous Peter, right, gets a bad rap, said something amazing, something beautifully honest. But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, this can be meant to give Peter great credit that, that, that he understood who Jesus was, but it also could mean, Lord, there's no other place to go. If there was, I would. But I understand there is no other place to go. Guys, hopefully you're the first Peter that says you're the best. There's nothing better than you. But if that's not it, then understand that after you meet Jesus, after you've tasted and seen that he is good, there is nowhere else you can go that will satisfy you in that way. Nowhere else. Absolutely nowhere else. We sang that song, Lead Me to the Cross. Right? And I don't know if you caught it, but in the chorus it says, Lead me to your heart. When we carry our cross, whatever it may be, we're displaying the heart of Jesus because we're saying, Not my will, but your will be done. That hurts sometimes. but we're being led to the heart of God. It says, and so deny yourself. Pick up your cross and then follow me. Now, if anyone can say, follow me, it's Jesus. Amen? There's no, no one more worthy of being followed. The best of men are men at best. We're reminded of that a lot. The best of men are going to let you down because they're just merely men. But Jesus is worthy he is Lord. He will never leave us or forsake us. We can learn from him for his yoke is easy. His burden is light. He is the way. He is the truth and the life. He is the road to the Father. Yes, we can follow him. Yes, we should follow him. But not only that, he knows the way because he went the way. He isn't a God that says, hey, do this, suffer, and I'll watch you from heaven. Ha, 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 ha. No, he died. He suffered. He showed us the way. He knows the way because he went the way. I was watching the, uh, the Western Conference Finals the other day. Uh, those Lakers. But anyways, LeBron was in the huddle, and he said something to the guys. He says, follow my lead. Why? 
Why did he have the authority to say that? Follow my lead. Because he had been there before. He had been there before and he can tell him, follow my lead. As a kid, as any kid has, I had superheroes like Batman, Superman. But I also had ethnic superheroes. A lot of you guys know Spanish was my first language. And one of them was El Chapulín Colorado, (laughs) a.k.a. the Red Grasshopper. What a name for a uh, superhero, huh? But he had this saying. Some of you guys that grew up with him know what the saying was. He would say, Sígame los buenos. And for Mike's sake here, translation, good ones follow me. It was a way of saying, let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. Come on. Join me. Now, none of us are good, right? Sígame los buenos. Who, me? No. But... We were all washed by the fount. And in ourselves, we're not good, but we've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 118, I'll read you from the New Living Translation. says, Come now, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. They are, though they are like red crimson, I will make them as white as wool. So when the red grasshopper tells you, Follow me, the good ones follow me, we can say, yeah, I can follow Jesus because in him I am good. In him is my righteousness. Have you settled who you are in Christ? Because you settled who Jesus is in you? Then if you do, you put him first. I was reading a devotional today with my wife and it closed with this. Live with an awareness of God's presence in your life and it will show up in your routines and in your reactions. I'll repeat that. Live with an awareness of God's presence in your life and it will show up in your routines and in your reactions. I know when I'm not living in the presence of God because I'm quick to snap at my children or my wife. But when I'm aware of the presence of God, I have more long-suffering, I have more patience, I have more love. Why? Because I'm denying myself. Maybe inside I want to say something, but, 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 but I pick up my cross and I don't. God doesn't intend the crosses of life to crush us, guys, just to conform us, to conform us into the image of his son. Jesus was already crushed by the cross. We don't have to be crushed by the cross. He just wants us to pick up the many crosses And follow him. Look what it says in verse 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? This is a... Extravagant. Not too many people can attain this. I think of someone like Solomon. I think of someone like Elon Musk or the dude that owns Amazon or something, right? Most of us are not going to be able to attain this. But sometimes, you know, things happen here at church on a Sunday and I have to go do a Home Depot run and Home Depot is packed on Sundays. Why? Because people are focused on what? On their homes. On their white picket fences. 
on their cars, on their vacations. And, and, and the church on Sunday is dying. The church on midweek, man, I, I applaud you, okay? Because there's some churches that had to close down on midweek because people just weren't showing up. But it happens on Sundays, and, 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 and how could that be the case? How could it be that Christians are denying themselves if they can't even find themselves to go to church regularly on a Sunday to worship Him, to, to, to be on time for worship? He says this in a very strong and direct way. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's a, have you guys ever been involved in a gift exchange program? Times are so tight that a lot of families are doing that now, right? They pick names and, you know, oh, you got Uncle Bob, and under your breath you're like, he's a cheapskate, I'm going to get gypped and all this stuff, right? <laughs> or you get something you don't like, right? And you're like at the store and you see him at Target with the present that he gave you, right, in line to exchange it. Well, in essence, that's what Jesus is doing. It's a gift exchange program. His life for ours. Which one's worth more? In John eleven twenty five, Jesus told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is the exchange life. This is what Jesus gives us when we give him our pathetic little life. In John 12, verse 24 and 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it's a life eternal. I'm reminded of the Israelites in the desert in Exodus 16. You know, they were complaining. We could have had this back in Egypt. Man, we had this and we had that. Instead of the stinking manna that we have to eat every day. What did they forget? They had forgotten where they were freed from. I'm sure you've heard of the, 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 the way that they trap monkeys, right? They put a jar and they put peanuts or candy in that jar and the monkeys stick their hand in the jar as they bury it in the ground. No way the monkey can take the jar out. They're just trying to take what's inside the jar. And now they're stuck because as they pull out their hand with a wad full of peanuts or, or, or candy, their fist doesn't fit through the opening of the jar. What do they have to do? They just have to let go. But what happens? Those greedy monkeys don't let go and they die. We were talking to someone who says, you know, I just ha- I can't let go yet. I can't, I can't let go yet. And, and, and within that sphere of conversation, that person is saying, this is what I went through. This is what I went through. This is what I witnessed. This is the suffering that I've gone through. This is my family. This is the situation. And they're saying, but I can't let go yet. I can't let go and surrender my life to Christ. It's almost like you're, you're holding on to this cancer and Jesus is just saying, let go of it and, and, and I'll do the work. I'll float you down that river of life. Let go, die to self, and live. Adrian Rogers in closing says, when I was a child, we used to play a little game called Finders, Keepers, Losers, Weepers. How many of you guys remember that game? 
But our Lord is saying, losers, finders, keepers, weepers. If you're a keeper, you're a weeper. But if you're a loser, you're a finder. Verse 26 is for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? As we contemplate self-denial, as, as we're tempted to run from our, our crosses or seek idols in help and comfort to numb ourselves from the pain, may we be reminded that even if we gain everything, it can't compare to our soul. And this is what we're talking about here. It's not like you can be a disciple on the outskirts. It's not like, no, Jesus says, if you are going to be called a disciple, this is what you must do. May we not be like the unnamed rich man in Luke 16, begging and haggling when it was too late. May we not be indifferent to eternal matters until they matter. May we know that they matter now. There's a reason this is a hard saying. The Lord is placing supreme value on obedience to his command to deny self, take up your cross and follow him. Seeing through an eternal perspective, everything else is of minimal significance, guys. Hebrews 12.2 in closing reminds us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, I never got that, who for the joy, the passion it's called, his passion to die for us. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen? Let's be disciples. But let's understand what the definition of disciples. We're going to fail every single day. Let's ask for forgiveness. Let's seek God's help through his spirit to be able to deny ourselves daily, to be aware of the presence of God daily. It'll show up in our routine. It'll show up in our reactions to others.